the most important word in Christmas is a preposition. It's with. It's a small word, but when you read the Christmas story through the word with, it gives you new meaning. It's a new story. It's bigger horizons. God with us. Greetings favored one, said the angel to Mary. The Lord is with you. John said, in the beginning, before Christmas, was Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Without Him, nothing has been made that was made. Short theology lesson. It will be short, I promise. You don't look like you're in the mood for it. If I'm reading John right, he is saying, in the beginning, before the world began, was not the solitude of one. It was the communion of more than one. It was community, was not an individual. It was a communion so perfectly shaped toward one another, so fully with one another that each one's power was fully divested in the others. Each one's glory rested completely in the others. There was no envy, no misunderstanding, no anger, no irritation, no two of them ganging up on the third one. They were so perfectly with one another that they were one. And yet, at the same time, they so cherished and elevated the distinctness and the differences in the others that they were three. That's good theology. Course is over. It gets better. 11 verses later, John says that this word that was with the others became flesh and dwelled among or with us. Now you start to see that all of creation, especially you and me, especially the way that we come together in and outside of this building is to form with each other a union in solidarity 
that comes out of the God who created us. You start to see why we have this longing to be one. Despite the fact that we can't get it right and despite the fact that we overestimate others' problems and underestimate our own, there is still this vision, this dream, and it comes alive at Christmas, doesn't it? That somehow, maybe, we will get this right. It's that withness. It's like I say, it's a small word, but when you put it over your eyes, you start to see it everywhere, especially in the New Testament. Jesus chose 12, said Mark, whom he named apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And one of my early mentors said, remember, Steve, always sit in that order. If you're a preacher, if you're a teacher, if you're a leader, your first calling is to be with him. And the sending flows out of you being with him. Jesus was criticized by the scribes and the Pharisees, not only for what he did, but for who he was with. Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? The parable of the prodigal son, the elder son out in the field says to the father, I've spent all my life slaving for you. And the father says, son, all of these years, you have been with me. All that I have is yours. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he watched his closest friends pull away from him. First Peter, then Judas. But he said to the disciples at the supper in John, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then after the resurrection, he joins two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They walk the seven miles. When they get to the disciples' house, listen to the words of Luke in Luke chapter 24. They urged him strongly to stay with him for the night. So he went in and stayed with them. <laughs> you don't see it until you're looking for it, then you start to realize it's everywhere and there's something more that's happening here than just the story. It's like there's a plot behind the plot. The following morning when the disciples got up from Emmaus, they ran back to Jerusalem where they joined the 11 that were already together. And while they were in the room, Jesus suddenly appeared wait for it, and stood among them and said, peace. Hours before he is ascended into heaven, he gathers his followers on a little mound outside Jerusalem and says, surely I am with you. Always. 
right up to the end of the age. Translated, there is never a time when I am not with you. Standing on the island of Patmos, a Roman prison, something like an Alcatraz in the first century. John, now old, goes out to the coast and looks up to the sky and he sees the pageant of God in full display and he tells us what he sees. And this is what he said in Revelation chapter 21. I see a new heaven and a new earth. I see the holy city coming down from heaven like a bride. I hear a loud voice crying from the throne saying, now is the dwelling of God among us and he will live among us. Then you start to wonder, even though I've missed this, is this not the end game of all the Christian story? You all right? Because you're quiet. You're bored or thinking. I can never tell. Now, with and for are two different things. They're connected sometimes. They don't have to be, but they're not the same thing. Being with someone is presence. It's attention. Partnership. It's giving one's energy. It's discovery. Reciprocity. Solidarity. Being for is advocacy. Compassion. Assistance. Relief. Now, as I say, you, you can be for someone without being with them. But you can't truly be with someone without being for them. Because the longer you're with them, you start to resonate with them, your heart with their heart. And you don't really decide to help someone. You just, it just flows naturally out of you. When you are for someone, you open their eyes. You open their prisons. You set captives free. But when you're with someone, you get into their prisons you let what is happening to them happen to you in real time. And that is why you can't be with someone for very long before this other engine kicks in and you start thinking, 
I got to do something for them. But when you're just for someone, you want to fly in and drop an act of compassion and then get back to your life. When you're with them, you have no other life. It is your home. To be sure, God is for us. That's what Good Friday and Easter and the Ascension and Pentecost are all about. He does for us what only God can do. God acts first and God acts alone. And he just pulls all of humanity up into his narrative. You're better just because he is. But Christmas is different. In Christmas, God is with us. Still there? There is in this passage, well, I have enjoyed through the season of Advent reading the sermons of Isaiah. <laughs> you thought my sermons didn't make sense. But once you learn how to chop them up, because the sermon doesn't end where the chapter does. Chapters were added some 12, 13 centuries later. Once you chop the scroll up into a collection of sermons and read them one sermon at a time, and when you've done this after you have preached, as I have, well, sometimes for over 40 years, you just start to appreciate what the old guy's doing in a sermon. You're not just listening. You're watching that sermon move. And you think, oh, I know what he's going to do now. And he doesn't do it. It is that case here. When you read the Bible through the lens of for and through the lens of with, you get two fundamentally different interpretations. Both might be true, but they are not the same interpretation. In the Old Testament, for instance, there are two main events. One involves Egypt and the other one involves Babylon. Now, they seem to be very much the same. Egypt is God's people in bondage through no fault of their own. And then God breaks in and he rescues them out of Egypt and brings them into the promised land. That's how you read it if it's four. But when you start reading the Exodus as if it were with, you start to see things you didn't see before. The very grounding of Israel's deliverance is in God's call to Moses when he says, I will be with you until you bring these people back on this mountain. Then you discover 
that while the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, the real question is never, where are we going to find food? Or why did you bring us out here to die? The real question is in Exodus chapter 17, is the Lord among us or not? Because let's be honest, if the Lord is not among us, nothing else matters. But if the Lord is among us, we can get through anything. And so when Moses goes up the mountain in chapter 33 of Exodus to negotiate a contract with God on behalf of the people, God is so angry he wants to leave. And Moses says, unless you go with us, don't send us up from here. For what will distinguish us from all other people in the world unless you go with us? And so the Lord relented and said to Moses, my presence will go with you. And it was on. If you read the Exodus through the lens of with, the big deal isn't the Exodus. It's the covenant on the other side. The exodus is only necessary to bring the people of God into a marriage. And that's about solidarity. That's about union. I could stop here. We're just warming up. The second major event is that of the exile. It's, it's Babylon. This time, the people of God are, are captive to Babylon. And this time, it is their fault. And the story of Babylon is like the story of Egypt. It moves in three movements. There is bondage, then there is deliverance, and then there is freedom. But deliverance and freedom mean two very different things if you read it through the lens of with instead of four. So I pick up Isaiah chapter 42 and 43. That's one big long sermon. You thought mine were long. And I notice that in the first half of the sermon, Isaiah is talking about bondage. And in the second half of the sermon, chapter 43, he's talking about the deliverance. In chapter 42, Isaiah says to his congregation sitting in front of him, much like you are this morning, he says, the Lord is going to send a spirit-filled servant into this world. And that servant is going to finally bring justice. He mentions it three times in four verses. The servant of the Lord is going to bring us justice but he's not going to do it by shouting with a loud voice or by protesting in the street. No, no, says Isaiah. The servant of the Lord will live quietly and well among us. 
And one by one, little by little, he will open the eyes of the blind. He will release people from their prisons. He will set captives free. He will turn on the lights for people who sit in darkness. And so says the preacher to his people that morning, you should sing to the Lord and you should shout with joy to the Lord because he is about to cut loose on this world and save it. And then halfway through the sermon, you're not ready for it. I wasn't. But it changes. Isaiah says, this servant that God is going to send is not just a person, he's a people. This is a whole tribe. This is a whole nation that acts like one person. It is through this people that God is gonna release the prisoners and open eyes that are blind. Are you there? The trouble, says Isaiah, is that the servant is himself or themselves blind. God wants to open the eyes of the world through the servant, but the servant's own eyes are blind and their own ears are deaf. And the more you read on, you discover that Israel's bondage is an internal condition. Her bondage is because she has eyes, but she doesn't pay attention. And she has ears so she can hear, but she won't listen. And then you start to think, wait a minute. <laughs> At first, she wouldn't pay attention and now, as a result, she can't see. And at first, she wouldn't listen. So now, as a result, she can't hear. She has shut down her hearing and seeing. When the Lord is among her, she won't pay attention. So now she sees nothing. And in an odd way, the preacher says, the servant is herself. Trapped in pits, hidden away in prisons. She could not see the connection between act and consequence. It's a form of blindness. And now the consequences have overtaken her. She can't even think another way. She is trapped into her way of thinking. Now the problem is complex. Since Israel's bondage is internal and not just external, you can't just break in and let her out. 
you can't do something for her. Because if you break in and let her out, she is only going to find new prisons. She'll find new addictions to cover up the last one. She will move from prison to prison because her problem is not her oppressors. The problem is her blindness. She has oppressors because of her blindness. You still there? So what is God to do? He can't do nothing because that's not the kind of God he is. Man, I love this quote by Alec Meyer. Meyer says, to know that God must deliver us is a deeper truth than knowing that he will deliver us. He must because it's his nature. But at the same time, he can't just leave us in the state that we were in. What does he do? Chapter 43. He deliver us. But he delivers us not by breaking us out. He delivers us by breaking himself in. Chapter 42 and 43 are both true at the same time. Israel is still in bondage and God is still with her. She is still trapped in pits, slaves in Babylon, and at the same time, God is calling her by name and redeeming her. You guys are too quiet. Am I the only one that's enjoying this? This is a story, ain't it? Now, when I reflect on Isaiah's sermons, two themes strike me, and I got five minutes to say them. One is the way that God is with us in our prisons. This got me thinking about how much of my prayer has been about God doing something for me. And I have totally taken for granted the fact that God is with me because nothing is happening. And I, I haven't learned to value that yet. God is trying to teach me that the only thing more powerful than the miracle I pray for is the companionship of God himself. Because the truth of the matter is, most of life can't be fixed 
most of life falls between the answers. Most of life doesn't fit on the problem-solution axis. Most of life is hard and slow and messy. And you can't just throw a miracle at it from the outside if what's need to change is on the inside. You have to enter it. You can't just fix it. And in this way, God enters our darkness and our loss and our addictions, our frustration, our anger, our oppression and injustice. He doesn't just lead us out. He breaks himself in. And I at least have undervalued that. We should know this. Christmas doesn't fix anything. You know this. It doesn't fix anything. Christmas is an entering, not a getting out. It's a deliverance, but not through escape. The second and the really big part for me was this teaches us not only how God is with us, it teaches us how we are called to be with others in the world. I did not say for them. I said with them. There has been a lot of uh, interest in the last couple years, uh, uh, and I think this is something that the younger generation has gotten right. There is a need for compassion. There is a vast difference between whole races of people. The playing field is not level. And so we have tried things to fix the situation. We have uh, listened to the oppressed for the purpose of fixing the oppressed. And this has lasted for about two or three years at its peak now. And there is starting to come across even the church a compassion fatigue. How can we throw so many resources at these problems and they don't get any better? Why do the people we rescue go back to the same kind of things? And I'm starting to think, people, that the problem is not with our compassion. The problem is that our compassion has been misguided. Our compassion has been guided for doing for instead of being with. When we are with people, we sit in their presence even when we can't fix them. When we are with people, we don't fix their lives. We enter their lives. 
We don't advocate for people to come into the border or be freed from their chains when we can't even name three of the people we're trying to liberate. We don't cast out demons we can't name. Yet that is exactly what we have done. The most aggressive ones in the room, myself included, have spoken at something instead of from it. What did the New York Times writer say of Princess Diana and Mother Teresa both died on the first day? They said Princess Diana was a tourist to poverty. Mother Teresa lived there. You all right? I got to read you this story, then I'm done. My roommate for two years at a Christian college was a German named Rainer, said Philip Yancey. Returning to Germany after graduation, Rainer taught at a camp for the disabled. Relying on college notes, he stood up and gave stirring speeches to the disabled on the victorious Christian life. Regardless of the wheelchair you sit in, he said, you can have victory, a full life. God lives within you. That's what he said to a congregation of paraplegics, cerebral palsy patients, and the mentally challenged. And he found it disconcerting to preach to people with poor muscle control whose heads wobbled, slumped in their chairs. They drooled. They found it equally disconcerting to listen to Rainer. Some of them went to Greta, the director of the camp, and they complained that they couldn't make sense of what he was saying. So she said, well, then tell them. <laughs> One brave woman got up the courage and confronted Rainer. She said, it's, it's like you're talking about the sun, and we're in a dark room with no windows. We can't understand anything you say. You talk about solutions, about flowers outside, about overcoming and victory. These things just don't apply to our lives. Well, my friend was crushed, said Yancey. To him, the message was clear. He was quoting from Paul's epistles, of course, his pride was wounded and he, he thought about coming back at them the next week with more spiritual bludgeon. There's something wrong with you people. You need to grow. But instead, he spent the night in prayer. And then the following day, he returned with a different message. He said, I don't know what to say. I'm confused. If I can't preach a message of victory, I'm out of stuff. And then he started to cry. And the woman who confronted him 
finally spoke up from the room full of disabled people and said, Now we understand you. Now we are ready to listen. When we are with people, we do not hand them solutions. We enjoy the people that they are, the part of them that is not marred by what we consider their problem to be. We listen to them and we learn from them and we accept whatever approach, whatever method they use, even if it seems imperfect to us. We let go of the person we want them to be and just enjoy the person they are today. That is how God came at Christmas. Are you all right? Who are the people God is calling you to be with? Is it the oppressed? Is it the ill, the terminally ill? Is it the emotionally unstable? Is it the agnostic, the professing atheist, the critic? Is it the broken, the one overwhelmed? by life, the chronically sick, the ones the doctors tried at first to cure and then when they couldn't, let them go. Who has God called you to be with? Would you bow your heads? Now, Father, in this beautiful way, at Christmas, you have come to be with us without always trying to change us. And by being with you, we are changed. Inside first, we are changed. Church, hear the word of the Lord. If God is with us, who can be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God, who was with us in Christ, also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us? God has chosen us. Who is the one 
who condemns us. God is the one who died for us, was raised to life for us, sits now at the highest place of honor next to God, pleading with us. Can anything ever separate you from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves you if you have trouble or calamity, if you're persecuted, if you're hungry or cold or in danger or even threatened with death itself? No, it means none of this. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is yours through Christ who loved you. So I'm convinced that nothing will ever separate you from his love. Death can't, life can't, angels can't, and demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries for tomorrow, even the powers of hell itself cannot keep God away from us. Whether we are high in the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ Emmanuel, our Lord, the word of the Lord.